Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Ingrid Blaine about her new book, Vendors Capitalism, A Political Economy of Public Markets in Mexico City. Hello, and welcome to the show, Ingrid. Hi, Ethan, and thank you for having me in your show. I'm excited to talk to you about your book today, but before we start, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on this project? I am originally from Argentina, where I trained as an economist, and I already there developed an interest in the history of capitalism. Then I went to grad school in the U.S. I went to Harvard, where I took courses, of course, in the history of Latin America, but also in the history that relate to the expansion of capitalism in Latin America. And I've been working on this book ever since. I absolutely love talking to and reading books by historians with an economics background. So it makes sense why I like your book so much. But let's start by talking about what you bring to the book with some political economic analysis. So the book studies the political economy of markets and vendors in Mexico City between 1867 and 1966. So for our listeners who maybe don't specialize in Mexican history or aren't sure why those dates were chosen, could you outline why did you choose these two dates over this roughly a century long period? And what are some of the major significant bookmarks that happened within this time period, just so people can follow along? I know that's a bit of a loaded question, given how busy Mexican history is during this hundred year period. Um, but just introducing these dates and, and why you chose this time period. So the book starts with the consolidation of Republican forms along liberal lines after, nine, after 1867. And then goes through the first capitalist boom in the context of the late 19th century globalization. After that, it covers the collapse of this liberal order during the Mexican Revolution of 1910 to 1920 and the emergence of something that we could term state capitalism after the Great Depression, which after World War II supports a boom, a new capitalist boom based on a different premise of the dynamism of the domestic market. So it, covering this long period allowed me to, to study two moments of capitalist expansion and also the, the, the conditions that made it possible, as well as the crisis in, in 1910, 1920, but also around the time of the Great Depression that allowed the country to change uh, developmental paths. So, so this is such a period of immense change. I'm sorry, were you going to add more to that? So on the one hand, this is the, 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 the sort of the chronology that the book navigates. But what I was trying to do is to look at all of this from the perspective of, of markets and market vendors, because I, I wanted to, to, to discuss these notions of the form of expansion of capitalism that I had learned by studying classical political economy, by studying debates on the transition to capitalism, that, we see dog debate, the Brenner debate, but also as, a, as an economist from Argentina, 
who trained in a Latin American tradition, I was also questioning certain ideas about dependency theory and about uh, modernization theory-informed narratives of economic development. So what I was trying to, to look at, what happens if we pay attention not to capitalists and workers, as all of the literature that I had been reading and being inspired by was doing, but looking at it from the perspective of the vendors who I term following uh, John Womack, proprietary traders, but more generally the perspective of the self-employed. I do this because I think it allows us to distinguish a multiplicity of, of class conflicts that are happening at the same time and also interacting with one another. So a lot of the complexity of the political economy of Mexico City that I try to, to, to explore through the detailed history of markets in this long period, is it was an attempt to pursue these ideas and try to see where they took me. Your introduction makes a number of great points using the sort of political analysis that, that, you've, that you've just introduced to us here. But I was particularly interested in your argument about this class position of vendors. Mm -hmm. So like you just said, they're neither exactly capitalists or workers. So could you tell us a little bit about what role vendors play in this mode of production, in this political economy of the city, and how you came to this conclusion? So on the one hand, public markets are responsible for feeding the population of the city. So as such, the vendors that operate in those markets have a very strategic place and therefore can derive some kind of bargaining power from that position. But what was most interesting to me was to make that distinction that you're mentioning between uh, vendors on the one hand and capitalists and workers on the other hand, because the social relations of production that involve them are different. So workers and capitalists are in relation with one another. Capitalists hire workers for a wage. They tell them what to do. They own the product of workers' labor. Now, vendors don't have that type of social relation of production. And as a result, don't have the same type of class conflict that capitalists and workers have with one another over the distribution of the value generated, produced by vendors, uh, by workers. So vendors have very specific uh, social relations of production. In particular, they are in relations of production with their suppliers and their creditors. Vendors go buy stuff, transport stuff, sort stuff, uh, advertise stuff, and sell stuff. And that's the, the, the work they perform, but they're not performing it for a wage. So if we think in terms of exploitation, the type of exploitation that vendors experience is in their relationship with their suppliers and their creditors, and it takes the form of disputes over the prices that vendors pay for the stuff they buy from their suppliers and the interest rates they pay to the same people who happen to be their creditors more often than not. So that type of relation of production will involve different forms of negotiation and different forms of conflict. At the same time, vendors are in terrible conflict with one another. They're competing with one another all the time. And when I read tons and tons of sources, it, this keeps on coming up and it keeps on taking different forms. And a lot of the activism of vendors and eventually vendor organizations is precisely about navigating those tensions that stem from competition. So it's a different type of uh, relation of production and it's a different type of conflicts that these vendors are involved in when compared to, say, workers. 
one of the things that I love about this book is it traces the way that these conflicts and these discussions change over time. It's not just this frozen sort of system. And your first chapter introduces us to what you term the moral economy. So your, your first chapter is called Taxes and Compassion, a great chapter title, 1867 to 1880. And it looks at the moral economy of public markets in the 19th century in pre-industrial capitalist Mexico. So what are some of the rules and norms of this moral economy of public markets? Yes. Yeah, so Mexico City at the time was relatively small. And in, but more significantly, I think it was a low-stakes city. And what we have is a community managed, arbitrated by a city council, an ayuntamiento that is a colonial institution. And markets are still so important to that ayuntamiento because they provide 10% of the budget that the ayuntamiento can obtain to manage the life of the community. So on the one hand, Taxes are a serious concern of the local elite and the local authorities. That is the taxes that vendors are, are paying into the city's coffers. And by the way, these are on this 10%, three quarters of which are from street stalls that are part of these markets, which are not yet fully formed as a whole with the boundary that separates them from the public thoroughfare. So on the one hand, we have the, the, this relatively small community where not much has been changing yet. And we have a city council managing the life of the community, the social relations of the community. And markets are important, not just because they are supplying the population with what they need on a daily basis, but also because they contribute taxes. Now, what I find is that there's something else going on, which is this moral economy. And Mexico being Mexico, this is, I claim, built on Catholic uh, ethics and doctrine. And by that, I mean that we need to read uh, in, in theologians' account what this uh, compassion means, which means three things. The ability to have the knowledge of other people's circumstances, the ability to be moved by their circumstances, and also the ability to act upon this movement and these feelings and this knowledge. So this city council will be uh, operating publicly with this uh, notion of compassion when it's handling uh, vendors. So in a way, what I'm arguing here is that because it's still a low-stake city or a relatively small community, we can have some kind of consensus around these norms, these obligations, these duties, based on, on the claim of knowledge of other people's circumstances and the duty to, 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 to act on things that move you in terms of, of, of the situation that people are finding themselves in. I really like how you just laid out the, the important process of this charity, of noticing, of being moved, and then acting. And towards the end of the chapter, you have a really great story of the city council feeling moved by the plight of some market vendors and asking the president, uh, I believe it was Benito Juarez at the time, to... Um, to intervene on their behalf, and then he intervened a little bit more than they <laughs> expected or maybe desired. So could you tell us a little bit about this this over this over-regulation in a way they did not anticipate for the moral economy? Yes, I absolutely agree. I think that uh, that episode helps me illustrate precisely this point. This point. So in, in 1871, the president of the Ayuntamiento, whose name was Arteaga, uh, 
he says to his fellow council members that he had noticed that the Indian female vendors of tortillas, vegetables, and flowers are paying for time the working capital in taxes, and that this breaks his heart, and that, yes, he knows taxes will suffer, but that they need to act. So what the Ayuntamiento there tries to do, because the Ayuntamiento does not have power to change fiscal laws, they petition President Juárez for, for such an exemption. Now, Juárez has nothing at stake in the moral economy of the city. So he writes back, and I don't know why he writes back the way he writes back. It's probably a, a political uh, drama unfolding. But he says, well, let's fully exempt everybody, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of what they sell, and also regardless of where they sell it. So this threatens, this, this, it threatens the ayuntamiento because it threatens its uh, tax base, but most importantly, it threatens its ability to shape markets, which, as I was trying to argue in the chapter, is so central to the making of the community and the running of the city. Eventually, that doesn't happen, and the ayuntamiento goes back to charging taxes, and in a couple of years, the level at which they're taxing these people goes back to the pre uh, decree by Juarez level. Um, it's, a, it's a great example of uh, them getting maybe a little bit more than they bargained for. <laughs> and I, I think it's a great transition into a more liberal way of governing the city, to use that, that term kind of generally, as your second chapter, A Cloak of Magnificence Over Beggar's Rags, 1880 to 1903. Look at how public markets fit and didn't fit into a more modern and capitalist development during the Porfiriato. So in particular, you highlight the concern that reformers had with the moral and physical space and the hygiene of the old marketplaces. So how were public markets reimagined during this time period and what sorts of changes did and didn't end up taking place? After, after 1880, what we see is a capitalist boom in the city. And that is a combination of economic growth and political instability. And this, as a lot of the wonderful literature we have for Mexico City in this period, tells us it leads to an overhaul of markets. That is, they build new halls, iron and glass halls, and they pass regulations, as you say, to, to, to shape the behavior of the popular classes, to shape the way people inhabit public spaces. So far, we already knew the, this history, but I wanted in that chapter to highlight a process of differentiation. That is, the process of capitalist expansion uh, when we think about it theoretically, we need to think about it in terms of a differentiation of capital and of labor. And what we have here is not just a differentiation between capital and labor, but within the vendor group, there is a process of differentiation. There is a group that will become locatarios, that will gain uh, spaces in these new halls, that will take part in the transformation of these markets and these ways of inhabiting the city. And that they do that in reaction to the competitors who now are starting to be called ambulantes. That is, it's vendors that gain a place in the markets, that accept a place in this more modern city, that use that negotiation with the authorities to suppress their competitors. So it's vendors, too, that are creating this boundary, this exclusionary boundary between street and market that the literature on the Porfiriato highlights. So I wanted to, to look at that. That competition between vendors, because of the very nature of the social relations of production, how that translates into a particular type of approach to this elitist approach at 
creating an imagined modern city. At the same time, there is something else going on. That same capitalist boom is going to undermine these customary ways of running the city. And this would mean an undermining of the ayuntamiento. The ayuntamiento just cannot manage with its institutional capacity the economic boom and the new challenges of borrowing money in, in London and managing this city that has more and more conflict. So what you have is that the repressive consensus that the literature highlights for the porfiriato, in particular towards the, the, the laboring classes or the urban poor, in fact, is also a, 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 a rejection of the ayuntamiento as, as, as a body that had been central to the history of the city, but now is seen in this horrifying gaze as unable to transform the city in the way that this capitalist boom is allowing politicians, journalists, uh, and, and capitalists, of course, to, to, to pursue. So that's why the chapter ends with the, the, the suppression of the ayuntamiento as a body with executive power over the urban community. And what I argue at the end of that chapter is that, yes, there's all this administrative reform and it's very important. There's all of this transformation of markets is very important. But what we need to see in this capitalist boom is the undoing of custom and the moral economy that we were just talking about. And that really sets up some of the major themes and conflicts that appear throughout the rest of the book, that a sort of in and out club of certain vendors based on their relationship with the city or the state, and then conflicts between vendors and them trying to resolve that either internally or with the state. And then the instability of these marketplaces due to the rapid growth of both the economy and population. So the, it's really interesting how it sets up what you go into much more detail in, in the rest of the book. But then funny enough, your third chapter, your next chapter, uh, highlights something very surprising given these conditions, which is a, a real moment of solidarity among the vendors. And the chapter is titled Vendors, Workers, or Pueblo, 1903 to 1928. And it examines how vendors reimagine themselves during the height of the Mexican Revolution. And you make some really interesting points about how certain social identities like worker or vendor or pueblo do or don't take root. So what sorts of activities were vendors up to during the Mexican Revolution? And how were what identities were either taken by the vendors or thrust upon them at this time? The, the chapter that is called Vendors, Workers, or Pueblo looks at the construction of vendor collective identities, both in terms of class and the political identities. This chapter cuts across the, the traditional markets of the historiography. It goes from 1903 to 1928. And what I find is that all during this period, we have markets that are administratively chaotic. It's a mess, it's a fragmentation, there's different bodies in charge, and no one really has a coherent approach to running this uh, strategic service for the city. So in this context, vendors start trying different things. So the moral economy of, 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 of the past is gone. They don't have a valid interlocutor. They write to the president. The president says it's not none of my business. They write to the governor. No, the governor says there's nothing I can do for you. They write to the uh, different uh, ministers, and the same happens. So in this uh, detachment from the authorities, vendors start experimenting with collective action. Now, by the time uh, the revolution breaks in, in, in Mexico City, what you have is lots of mobilization by workers. Workers are demanding better conditions, better pay, uh, the right to unionize, the right to not be fired, 
uh, and all sort of, of labor demands. Now, vendors, obviously, as I've been saying, are not workers, but vendors see in workers' mobilization, and in particular in the response by the government, that is the response, the government responds by trying to mediate between capital and workers. They don't want these uh, strikes to, to continue. They, they need the city to be run and they need capitalists to pay taxes. So very early on in the revolution, we, we have a government creating institutions to manage uh, class conflict. Now, vendors see in this creation of new mechanisms for managing class conflict, the opportunity to recreate a working relationship with the authorities. And they do so by calling themselves workers, by organizing unions, and by affiliating these unions to labor federations. And that's something that we see throughout uh, the period covering the chapter. And that's something that the authorities, whether it's the late Porfirian authorities, the authorities in place during the revolution or in the post-revolutionary period, they don't know what to do with this. That is, the authorities are lagging behind the changing time and the attitudes of vendors are reshaping the public sphere, are reshaping popular politics in a way that uh, will become more meaningful as the years go by. And we see this, and this is, a, uh, this is very conflictive and there's a lot of tension. For example, in 1924, vendors go on a demonstration. Now, I don't know of a previous instance of vendors going on a demonstration. They go and they demand justice. They start having their own notion of social justice. And what they're doing is that bringing to the public uh, space and to the public sphere and, and to politics their material uh, interest. They're saying, we are on the streets, the same streets where we peddle our wares, now we're occupying them with political purpose. They don't want a, a, a rise in, in the fees they pay for their stores, and they go and take this uh, to collectively and publicly to the uh, city authorities. Now, this ends up in violence. This ends up in, a, in repression. There's a dead or two among vendors and many more wounded and a little scandal. So what I do there is to look at the press, how the press covered this event, and how they portrayed vendors. And that's where the, the, the term pueblo comes So from the title. The press is portraying vendors as pueblo, pueblo that can uh, elicit sympathy, but that is denied political agency. The idea is that if vendors are demonstrating, is because of the machination of politicians. And it's true to some extent that there's a lot of politicking in the city at the time. The city is an epicenter of labor politics, and there is violence on the street around labor issues. But uh, what vendors are saying is, okay, how can we fit in a new public sphere? How can we fit in a city in, in a new context? And this is complicated. So on the one hand, they are associating with workers, but very soon they find this association problematic, not only because the violence that they are experiencing in the context of this politicking, but also because more and more, as the government is managing labor relations, they find that their interests and workers' interests don't align. So on the one hand, we have the demonstration that has vendors and their organizations acting publicly uh, to, to, to demand uh, protection of the interest. But also you have a situation, for example, when there is a, a decree for Sunday rest. Workers have been demanding a rest day. They, this is a, a, a provision in the Constitution. This is something that's going to happen. And 
there is a decree that says on Sundays, commerce, factory, markets, everything has to shut down. Now, vendors find themselves in a very awkward situation. Do they side with workers or do they say, no, we oppose Sunday rest? The, the commercial employees in their organizations are worried that vendors are going to go and demonstrate against Sunday rest and they're offering the government to go and demonstrate against vendors or maybe even prevent the, the demonstration. What ends up happening is that vendors start to, 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 to clarify their class position and cement their class identity. So more and more, they're starting to say, well, we're not like workers. We have other concerns. And, and this type of differentiation that becomes uh, quite uh, significant in the later years is something that I trace already to the 1920s. Uh, obviously, there are also these these class interests that you're talking about, such as the, the Sunday rest issue. But I found it so provocative that the ability to both withstand and then dole out violence are an important component of identity and group formation. And I, I think that this is a very interesting chapter for people who study violence or, or group identity formation or social movements in, in Latin America, of which, of which there are many. So your next chapter, your fourth chapter, Political Experimentation in a Time of Crisis, of Crises, 1929 to 1945, studies public markets as sites of unrest. So unrest again during the Great Depression and Second World War. Could you tell us a little bit how Mexico experienced these two major events, so the Great Depression and the Second World War, and what role did public markets come to play during these crises? Already because of the... Of the changes of the earlier period, that is the changes brought about by the revolution and the context in which the revolution took place, what you have is a very mobilized civil society in Mexico City. Now, there is a serious political crisis in 1928-1929 because of the assassination of, of President re-elect Obregón, and that leads to the suppression of electoral competition at the local level. That is that very uh, tumultuous city politics that I was talking about in the previous chapter, now is suppressed. So what the authorities do is create a corporatist body to articulate different interest groups. This idea is that the Fuerzas Vivas de la Ciudad needed to be managed and that representatives of big industry, small industry, big commerce, small commerce, government employees, uh, madres de familia, tenants, uh, property owners, they all will be represented along this sectoral uh, basis. So that is, we already have a process of experimentation in that sense about managing a process of experimentation in the management of tensions created by the expansion of capitalism and the government's awareness of the need to support that expansion. So the, the, the beginning uh, of the chapter deals with the Consejo Consultivo. I find that absolutely fascinating, especially because I, I go to read the, the minutes of of the meeting. So this body will meet uh, weekly or bi-weekly and discuss uh, government, uh, city bylaws and all sorts of conflicts going on in the city. Now, what I find is that very quickly, the complexity of the type of social conflict taking place in the city means that this type of management doesn't work. In particular, the likes of vendors because they're so fragmentary, because there's so many organizations, and because they're all in competition with one another, market vendors versus street vendors, 
different type of market vendors, different type of street vendors, and creating a compromise out of them in relation to established merchants, property owners, industrialists, all the groups that don't want markets to be taking place uh, to, to, in the, on the streets as they've been because the Porphyrian markets have been completely overwhelmed by population growth. So that the local government had to allow for stalls to, to be set up on streets. And there, there are some really nice descriptions by architects, by city planners saying, well, the markets, this is how a market grows. All of a sudden there is one vendor and he gets a permit for whatever reason and then others come and then you have a market on the street and this has to end. So the type of conflicts inside these spaces that are very expansive, the streets, the markets, the, the areas, the market areas that the government is trying to, to, to manage becomes uh, difficult for the authorities. Now, this Consejo Consultivo is, as a project is really uh, dead by, the, by, the, by 1932-33. And that's the moment at the same time where in the context of the Great Depression, you have businessmen pushing for economic policies to represent their interests. That is, anybody studying Latin America will know that from the 1930s, we have a process of improvised uh, import substitution. There is a big crisis because of the Great Depression. Import, uh, exports are falling, both in quantity and prices. There's no more credit flowing into the region. So governments don't know what to do. They have a problem with the balance of payment, and they have to put a, a, a check on the exit of foreign currency, of gold, of sterling, of dollars, and they, they start creating a protectionist environment. At the same time, what you see in the 30s, very clearly, I think, is that businessmen are using their connections uh, to promote their interests. So you have a recovery in the economy very early on, uh, since 1932, 33, it's very clear that on the one hand, the, the activities of the government and the policies implemented to deal with the balance of payment issue that you have because of the depression. At the same time, with the lobbies of businessmen that want opportunities to, to, to grow their businesses, um, what you have is economic recovery. In this context, you start having projects for urban renewal. And what's interesting to me in this project for urban renewal that you have in the 30s is the, pres the, the role of private capital is super important. And this is part so basically, we need to put markets and vendors and the dynamics that, uh, that involve the relationship between vendors and the state in the context of this government that more and more is supporting capitalist accumulation and, and, and a transformation of the city again. So um, this is the period where you have, for example, the construction of the paradigmatic, or at least the very famous Abelardo Rodriguez market. This is the, the, the market that is portrayed in the cover of the book, by the way. So it's a picture from the 1960s, but uh, the market is from the 30s. Now, what you have is an attempt to build this fabulous hall, and it doesn't work. And it doesn't work precisely because you have this issue of competition between street and market vendors and among all sorts of organizations of vendors. So what you see already then very clearly is that this tension between vendors themselves is undermining any type of urban redevelopment project and, and vendors become a headache for the post-revolutionary authorities. So what I was trying to get to in that chapter is that, uh, that we need to pay attention to what happens when you have 
very active proprietary traders or proprietary producers, to be more general, uh, very active, but also by the very nature of the social relations, very fragmentary movements. So what you see is that every time, whether it was the negotiation of the new bylaw for street trading or the, the, the attempt to, to, to make the Abelardo Rodriguez market come to life, it doesn't work because the state doesn't have institutional capacity to deal with the demands of vendors. Vendors have been asking for urban renewal projects that it would improve the markets. They consistently ask for, for, for more hygiene, for better markets, but they also consistently ask for the suppression of their competitors. So it's this, uh, these attempts by workers to, 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 to imagine themselves as, as part of the modern city that we need to pay attention to. And what we have is that um, they also start asking the government, for example, very much along the same line as capitalists are doing, for a bank to subsidize their purchases from their suppliers. That is, they don't want to keep on paying the, the, the interest rates that they're paying when they buy on credit. They want to get more, more, more collective bargaining power vis-a-vis their suppliers by, by having access to, to resources that would allow them to buy collectively. So it's the vendors themselves that are pushing the, the, the learning curve of the government in the management of the city. And this will happen eventually by nine. So in the 20s, they're already asking for a bank. But then this will only happen uh, after 1940. Well, that segues nicely into your fifth and final chapter, Vendor's Developmentalism, 1945 to 1966. And it traces the history of public markets during the period known as the Mexican Economic Miracle. And it's also the time period when the PRI, the, the PRI is really solidifying um, itself and its rule over Mexico. So how did vendors fit themselves into the developmental projects of the time period? And then as you point out in this chapter, they also fit themselves into what's almost as important, if not as important, the narrative of development. Uh, so how, how do markets and, and these vendors fit themselves into these two components of economic development? The city is industrializing. The city is industrializing, as I said, because of government policy, but mostly because the demand by businessmen to, to implement such policies. They are very discretionary, and certain uh, sectors and sector companies make the most business. Now, there's an issue then of the relationship between workers and capitalists. And part of the problem there is the class conflict over wages. And capitalists don't want to pay higher wages, and the state cannot make them pay higher wages. So what you end up having is a state that says, okay, maybe... Uh, we can't uh, support uh, wage increases, but what we can support is uh, a suppression of the increase in the price of basic goods. And that's how already from the 1930s, already by 1936, you start having uh, this uh, presence of the state in the form of price controls and also in the form of fines to vendors who are the public-facing part of the supply chain. So vendors more and more feel alienated from the state in the late 30s, and more and more are aware that their problem is with their suppliers that are, keep, that are still uh, charging them high prices, not respecting any type of prior control, but it's them who are being fined. 
So vendors and markets become central to the industrial relations of the city in this sense, because they are the ones supplying uh, wage goods. So by, by, by 1945, this improvised import substitution strategy becomes an, an actual import substitution strategy. So the government is more and more committed to publicly funding the process of private capital accumulation for private profit. So that's when we have the so-called Mexican miracle, we will have a, a historically high rate of economic growth, and vendors want to be part of this. Vendors continue to demand the same things they were demanding before, better markets, access to credit, subsidized credit, and management of the competition in their places of work. So what, what this chapter is trying to do is trace vendors in their conflicts with suppliers, but also in the problems that they're presented with when the government is trying to bring in producers to, to bypass wholesalers and retailers in the city to supply the, the laboring classes with uh, cheaper wage goods. So what we have there, I think, is, is, is the opportunity to look, as you said, vendors' own narrative of developmentalism, vendors' own attempt to make themselves fit in, 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 in this uh, model that promises they can become middle class. And it works in the sense that in this period that I covered in the last chapter between uh, 1945 and, and, and 1966, we have in Mexico City a ton of new markets, a ton of new markets, a ton of new stores in those markets, and a lot of social services provided to vendors in that market, in that set of markets. So that uh, is what that chapter is trying to do, but also it's trying to highlight how this type of inclusion that vendors manage because of their long trajectory of collective action and the, the, the long learning process of how to manage uh, political dynamics and also the long learning process of politicians in managing the demands and the conflicts of vendors that we have this uh, possibility of this market boom. But as I said, this is very exclusionary in the sense that it involves a lot of repression. It, it involves a lot of repression because for any market to work, you cannot have street vendors outside. That was the case of the Abelardo Rodriguez in the 1930s. It was gorgeous. It was fantastic in so many ways. But vendors did not want to go in because there were always people outside and it didn't make economic sense for them to go in to the point that uh, the market is used as a jail a temporary detention center for recalcitrant vendors who refuse to come in and are still occupying the streets. Now, that type of pattern of uh, enticing workers, uh, vendors to, 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 to trade in markets, in market halls, at the same time involves the repression of competition by keeping the streets more or less clear. So what you have is that vendors' inclusion in, the, in, 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 in this uh, promise of uh, progress in these uh, Mexican miracle years rests on the differentiation between street vendors and market vendors, this exclusion of market the, by market vendors as well of street vendors uh, ends up undermining the whole thing for markets 
because at some point when population growth overwhelms the, the, the infrastructure that the government managed to build, uh, then the political calculation of the pre will change and market vendors are not going to be any more a very important constituency. So at the same time, by the time you, you stop building markets, then the whole project of incorporating markets in the political economy of the city uh, will falter. It's such an interesting trajectory that, that this book takes from the very beginning of Catholic moral economy and charity being governing notions of the marketplace all the way until the end of this chapter with a much more sophisticated dialogue between, or, or at least a very different one, not to imply the former one is unsophisticated, uh, between vendors who are in the marketplace, vendors on the street, the, the, the state, and how they, they fit themselves into to the grander project of the Mexican Revolution. It, it's an absolutely excellent book that I can't recommend enough. Um, and thank you so much for telling us about it and, and giving us your time today to, to introduce the book, Ingrid. Before we go, could you tell our listeners a little bit about what project comes next for you? I am working on much more abstract, uh, and a more, I'm working on a more abstract project on the basic categories of political economy and, and revisiting classical political economy to update the categories of commodity, money, and capital to, 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 to be able to conceptualize a historical change. It's a collective project and it's an ambitious project. But in the shorter term, I will be working on inequality and in particular care work and how it changes across the income distribution. So there's not much more archival work for me in the near future, but I hope it will, I will go back to it eventually. It sounds like an extremely interesting work that will hopefully set up you and other researchers to write more great political economy on Latin America and other places in the world going future. Thank you so much again for your time today. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.